Well, uh, we're grateful that you're here. I know some of you are home from from school. You're on Christmas break. We're we're just glad that you're here. I just want to let you know. Um, tonight, we are in the book of Psalms. And we're going to be going through uh, the book of Psalms tonight in Psalm 2. And we're finishing our series of Advent. Uh, the Advent season is one of of anticipation. Right? This is a time of year where we get to celebrate the anticipation of our coming King. So at Christmas, right, we celebrate Jesus' birth. But we need to recognize that this is also a season for us to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. For centuries, remember, the Israelites awaited the arrival of their Messiah. They awaited the arrival of Christ. And this is why throughout the pages of Scripture, we find passage after passage in the book of the Old Testament, pointing forward to the fact that one day a king would come. One day the Christ would come. Well, we are now in a very similar situation as the church Only instead of living in anticipation of the first coming of Jesus, now we are living in anticipation of his second coming. So in celebration of this season, we have been strategically going through the Psalms. We've been going through a number of different Psalms, which all predict the coming of the Messiah. So a few weeks back, we began in Psalm 22, which you remember, was a prediction of the fact that the Christ would come and he would come to die for his people. And then last week, we went through Psalm 16. And Andrew led us through this psalm, which foretells of Jesus' resurrection. So when you put these two psalms together, we see that Jesus would come not only to die, but to rise from the grave. And tonight... We're in Psalm 2, where we're going to finish this season of Advent. And that's because Psalm 2 predicts the rule and reign of the Messiah. You see, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended to the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, and he sat down. And that's where he is right now, ruling and reigning over all things. Which is why we come to Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 predicts of this very reality. When we put all of these things together, we can see from the book of Psalms, from the Old Testament, that Jesus would come, die on a cross, rise from the grave, and then reign on a throne in heaven. So, Psalm 2. If you haven't turned there yet, I'd encourage you to turn there. We're going to start by just reading this passage. Let's begin in Psalm 2, verses 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 12. Here's what we find. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're going to begin in verses 1 through 3. Read, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And cast away their cords from us. You know, just last week, I was talking uh, with Jenna Acosta. She's here tonight, I believe. uh, After Kairos, and we were talking about global missions and how we can partner with God as as he seeks to bring the nations to himself through the gospel. And I brought up the nation of China. Because I have some friends who have been missionaries there for years, and I was telling Jenna about this this couple and uh, their team serving in a, a town called Lanzhou in China. Well, it turns out that last Wednesday, after I, I had this long conversation with Jenna, I'm home uh, with Amanda, we're eating breakfast, and she told me that that family that, that Jenna and I were talking about the night before, were told that they were not going to be able to serve in China anymore. You see, it turns out that they were on a trip back to the States when their mission organization let them know that they would not allow them to return to the nation of China. And the reason is that there is a new communist dictator in China who's begun a severe crackdown on Christianity. In fact, he has deployed his government officials to arrest and interrogate missionaries throughout the nation. And a number of the missionaries in Lanzhou, China, with the same organization as my friends, have already been arrested. So the agency told uh, my friends that they will not be permitted to return. The nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed. Sometimes, as we see in China, they conspire together against God and against his anointed one in obvious ways. It's an outright assault on God. But we see this elsewhere. Socialist dictator in Venezuela has starved his people while he and his lackeys relax in comfort. The same thing is happening in North Korea, another communist regime. Right now, there are riots and terrorist attacks reaping havoc in the nation of France. The nations rage against the Lord. But we have to be honest. This is also an American epidemic. We cannot be blinded into thinking that we are safe here in America. Let's not fall into the temptation of imagining that our nation is not on an assault against the Lord. Just last week, our nation's highest court had the opportunity to ban the federal funding, funding of Planned Parenthood, which is the nation's leading provider of abortion. And it turned out 
that the court, which, by the way, has a conservative majority, decided against that decision. The nations, even here in America, rage against the Lord. In verse 2, we see that this is a strategic move on, par- on the part of the nations. They don't merely rage in this disorganized and chaotic, chaotic manner. No, they, they come together. They gather against the Lord. They conspire with one another. They join forces. They make an alliance against God. Look at verse 3. Here we get some insight into how they wage their war. They say, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. What's he saying here? They are seeking to break off the Lord's cords. They hate the restraint that the Lord places on them. They hate God's law, and so they work together to do whatever they can in order to distance themselves from God's law. You know, this is what the postmodern war on truth represents. It's a war. It's the nations gathering together. The goal of post-modernity is to obliterate any sort of objective moral standard from our society. It's a worldview determined to throw off the cords of the Lord. It's a worldview determined to fight against God's standards for life and godliness. So we want to decide what we ought and what we ought not to do. We don't want anything outside of us or anyone other than us telling us what we can and cannot do. You know, isn't it interesting that the ultimate virtue of our postmodern society is tolerance? That's the goal. You need to be tolerant. If you do not tolerate the life choices and the morality that other people decide to live by, then you are failing to live up to this postmodern virtue. But let me point out here that tolerance is not a moral high ground. Tolerance is actually a sign that our society is raging against the ways of God. You know it's actually a loving thing? for God to place moral standards for us. It's actually a loving thing for the creator of the universe to tell his creatures how they ought to live in his created universe. That's a loving thing for God to do. And similarly, it is, it is good for us to exhibit God's character and his standards to a watching world. Disagreeing with someone's life choices is not bigoted intolerance. It's actually a sign of sincere love. Pointing people to God's standard of living is actually a kindness that you can show others. Because the last thing you want is for someone to to wage war against God, to cast off God's cords from their lives and let them go astray. We want to help them. We want to seek to to help them understand what God is calling them to in life. Now, as we begin to move forward into verses 1 through 3, I want to point one more thing out. Notice that there is actually a question embedded in these verses. He says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot 
then notice this little phrase. Why do they plot in vain? That's a loaded question, right? There is a preposterous nature to the rebellion that is going on in the nations. That's why in verses 4 through 6, we get this understanding of, of the reality that fighting against the Lord, rebelling against the Lord is a futile effort. Verses 4 through 6. This is how the Lord responds to his enemies. While the nations are conspiring against God in an act of rebellion, as they're, they're seeking to join forces and wage war, this is how the Lord responds. He responds with laughter. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There are times when someone's challenge against you is just amusing. There's no other word for it. Have you experienced that? I mean, it's like Steph Curry being approached by a middle schooler. And this middle schooler comes up to him and says, I'm challenging you to horse. Like, how else can Steph Curry, the greatest shooter of all time, respond in that situation? There's no other response that, that, that is applicable in there, in that situation, other than laughter. He just has to laugh. It, right, it's the guy sitting at a stoplight in his Ferrari, and other dude in his Honda Civic pulls up and begins revving his engine. Right? Mr. Honda is is challenging the guy in the quarter million dollars sport or the uh, quarter million dollar sports car, right? Tino drives a Honda Civic. <laughs> right? The, the the dude in the Ferrari, the only response that is that is actually warranted in that sort of situation is to laugh. And what makes these sorts of situations all the more amusing is when Mr. Honda Civic or the middle schooler is like dead serious. Like, no, Steph, I am challenging you. And he's got like, he's like bloodthirsty, right? And okay, I'll play horse with you, right? But he, it, it's a lost cause. That's what we have here. The nations have set themselves up against the Lord for battle. They're ready to wage war and the Lord looks at them and all he can do is laugh. Notice what we see in verse 5. After God laughs at them, he does offer a response. But notice his demeanor transforms. He goes from laughing at the audacity of the nations to Showing them his wrath. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. When the Lord does actually respond to the nations who are conspiring against him, it invokes fear. His, his response prompts terror within the nations. I want you to think back to high school for a moment. I'm sure you can think of that one punk kid in high school, who just loved to annoy everyone. Like it was his goal in life to get under people's skins, right? Maybe some of you in this room were, were this kid, right? You loved to frustrate people. You loved to poke phone, fun at people. And yet these types of kids, they're often the same people who after annoying like the biggest kid in the school, they cower away in the corner once the big kid like responds, it's the punk kid who, who's used to getting away with running his mouth that begins to cower away as soon as his running of his mouth elicits a response. But the moment someone holds this kid in check, he begins to whimper. 
right? We all know that kid. That kid is in this passage. (laughs) The nations rage. They run their mouths. They provoke the Lord to anger. And notice, the moment that the Lord turns his attention towards the nations and opens his mouth, the pest-like kingdoms of the earth, they go and cry in the corner. They begin to whimper in terror. All it takes is for the Lord to speak. And just like the little coward punk kid that whimpers the moment someone puts him in his place, so too the nations tremble the moment the Lord opens his mouth. So what is God's response? What does he actually say to his foes? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. God has set his king on Mount Zion. God's response to the nations is one of action. He places his king on the throne. This response prompts the nations to turn in terror. When they realize that the Lord has set his king on Zion, they are flooded with fear. They know the severity of this reality. They know what this means, right? Their doom is sure. Their hope of rebelling against God has dried up. And the reason that this is the case is because God has placed his king on Zion. So, so what do we know about this king, right? This is significant for us to consider. What do we actually know about this person, Verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the anointed one that this psalm has referenced multiple times already. This is the Lord's appointed king. And before we go into the details of these verses, I just want to point out that these few lines in this psalm are why we're discussing Psalm 2 over this Advent season. Psalm 2 is all about God's coming king who would reign on his throne in Mount Zion. This passage is a declaration that God is going to establish his kingdom. He is going to set his king on this throne and his king will rule and reign over the earth. And as God does this, all of the people who belong to him rejoice and all of his enemies tremble in fear. Notice, this is a decree. God has decreed to put his anointed one on the throne. So what's a decree? A decree is a public declaration which functions as a guarantee of what will come to pass. When God decrees this, the people of Israel are given a public declaration, a public promise. God is putting his own name on the line here. The sovereign ruler of history is promising a king is coming. So who is this king? Who is the king that the people of Israel are waiting for in Psalm 2? It is the begotten son. God declares to his anointed one, today I have begotten you. What is this getting at? What does this mean? Well, as New Testament Christians, we have an added level of understanding when we come to Psalm 2. We have an added level of understanding of who this 
this begotten son is, in fact. We know Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. But I want to point out that when you read Psalm 2 in its original context, we shouldn't immediately just jump to the fact that Jesus is the begotten son of God. This psalm is actually using Old Testament language. It's speaking of a coming son. Here's what I mean. This phrase carries on an idea that's spoken throughout the course of the entire Old Testament. God has promised over and over and over again that he will bring a son. He will deliver his people through an offspring. So this promised son appears over and over again throughout the pages of the Old Testament. So let's just do a quick survey of some of the places we, we see promises that an offspring will bring deliverance. Remember back to Genesis 3. This is one of the first promises God gives in the pages of Scripture. What does God promise Adam and Eve right after they fell into sin? God promises salvation for his people, and he promises judgment for the serpent. Remember, the serpent tempted Eve into sin. And God promised that this this rescue would come for God's people through a son. The woman would have a son, and this son would crush the head of the serpent. Next, another important figure in the Old Testament, Abraham. Similarly to Adam and Eve, Abraham was offered an offspring. God promised Abraham that from his lineage, from his offspring, would come kings. Well, this is interesting. Adam and Eve, then Abraham, are promised an offspring. And this offspring will bring judgment to God's enemies, and he will rule as king. Does that not sound like Psalm 2 to you? Keep going. Likely, the the person who wrote Psalm 2 was King David. King David also received a promise from God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That he would have a son who would reign as king and bring about peace to all the earth. Again, does this not sound like Psalm 2? This is why this psalm anticipates a begotten son to come and reign on the throne. Psalm 2 is reflecting on the fact that God has promised over and over again that an offspring is coming, a son is coming, and he will rule and he will reign. He will bring about peace. He will bring about a lasting peace. He will put all of God's enemies to rest. But we can't stop at reading Psalm 2 in light of what the Old Testament says. We have to read Psalm 2 in light of what the New Testament says as well. You know, you may remember the very beginning of Hebrews, verse 5, we have a quotation from Psalm 2. If you were here before we were in the book of, of Psalms, we spent quite a bit of time in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 1, right at the outset of, of the book, brings up Psalm 2. It brings up this begotten son. So let me just turn there to Hebrews chapter 1. Let me just read the first five verses of Hebrews 1. Here's what we read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, uh, uh, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. You see, Psalm 2 shows up right at this, the outset of Hebrews. Right? Hebrews can't go five verses without bringing Psalm 2 to our attention. Jesus is the promised reigning son of David. You see, as David wrote Psalm 2, he was reflecting on the fact that this promised son would come And he would put all of God's enemies in their place. But God fulfilled this promise in a greater way than Adam, than Abraham, or even David would have ever imagined. You see, what they did not realize was that the promised son of Adam, the promised son of David, the promised son of Abraham would actually be the eternal son of God. That was something that they just did not realize. The Lord has a way of fulfilling his promises in in far more profound ways than the original Old Testament writers even would have realized. And this is one of those examples. Now look what the Lord will do for his son in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Lord will make the nations, his anointed ones, inheritance. In other words, all of those people who have decided to set themselves against the Lord will soon realize we're under his dominion. We're under this king's dominion. Amanda and I recently watched uh, a series uh, on Netflix called Designated Survivor. Uh, This is one of those shows that starts off kind of well, and then all of a sudden it just dies this slow and bitter death. Um, They canceled it after the second season, and they did so for a good reason. Um, But at the beginning of the season, when it was still good, one of the very first uh, episodes, there was this scene where the new president walks into the bathroom And there's this random staffer in a stall, and he begins talking to the president, not realizing whom he was talking to. And he begins to kind of rail on the president, begins to to talk about how incompetent this new president would be, begins to rail against the new leader of the White House. And the staffer goes on and on about the new president's incompetence, but eventually he leaves his stall, and he stands face to face with the new president. And he realizes that he has not only been criticizing his boss to his face, he's been criticizing the president of the United States to his face. Obviously, right, he's filled with fear. He begins to blush. The situation has gone horribly wrong. He's been criticizing the president to his face. Well, to a far greater degree, that's what's happening here in Psalm 2. 
The nations are gathering together in order to wage war against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed one. But little do they realize God's anointed one is now their king. You see, God appoints his son to sit on the throne and then he expands his son's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And now all of God's enemies are under the jurisdiction of God's newly inaugurated king. The very same people who were conspiring against the Lord are now standing there recognizing the one we were conspiring against is now our commander-in-chief. So how do you respond when you realize that you are waging war against the king himself? What do you do when you recognize that you are on the wrong side of history? You are standing against the king of history. Well, those who find themselves under God's rule have one of two options. It's pretty simple. Either they submit or they rebel. Either they serve the king or they continue in their feudal war against him. That's what we see in verses 10 through 12. Now the kings of the earth have to decide. How are they going to respond to the fact that the king has been set on his throne? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, God sent his son to rule, but his kingdom is not limited to the nation of Israel. Here we see that this coming king would rule over the entire earth. And all of the kings of the earth now have a decision to make. But as the ruler of all, this king, he doesn't do what is, what is necessarily expected. He doesn't just come and offer judgment the moment he sits on his throne. Instead, he offers an invitation to all people. Anyone who calls on the name of this king will find refuge in him. Notice just this list of exhortations. God calls to the kingdoms of the earth, which these are the same ones in verses 1 through 3 who are waging war against him. He says, serve the Lord, be wise, kiss the son, Right? This is the proper response. Now that Christ is king, you ought to kiss the son. Show him the respect that he is due. And yet, when Christ came, the kingdoms of the earth did not heed this warning. Christ came the first time. The nations decided to gather together and wage war against the son. In fact, they went to the extent of putting this son to death. They put him to death on the cross, which is what we read about last week in Psalm 22, or two weeks ago. Christ's death was foretold in Psalm 22. But he did not remain in the grave. The coming king rose. He rose from the grave. This moment was also predicted. Psalm, Psalm 16. And now that Christ is risen from the dead, he is now reigning on the eternal throne of heaven. But this offer of grace still stands. 
the kings of the earth are still given the opportunity to respond with humility. They're still given the opportunity to respond by kissing the son. Right? He is reigning from heaven for the time being, but that will not always be the case. Christ will not always be reigning from heaven, offering grace. He will return. We see hints of that in this passage. When he does return, there will be recompense. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Christ will return to earth and either you can pay him the respect he deserves or you can continue to wage your war against him. But we have to to be assured that those who wage their war against the son will face him one day and they will not face his kindness. Instead, they will face his judgment because he is returning to offer judgment. He is returning to offer justice. And when you set yourself against the king, you will perish for his wrath is quickly kindled like we see right here. But we can't end there because the psalm doesn't end there. Notice how this passage ends. Those who serve the Son, those who kiss the Son will be blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the beauty of the King. There is always an opportunity to serve Him. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is an opportunity to turn from your rebellion and walk in communion with God. Because those who repent of their rebellion can go from being enemies of God to being friends of God. And those who turn to Christ, instead of facing his wrath, will face eternal blessings. Remember last week, we, we read about the eternal blessings of the Lord. We saw this in Psalm 16. There are pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. There are pleasures forevermore in God's presence. He offers eternal joy. God is the source of joy. He is the source of happiness. He is the source of blessing. And when you enter into his presence, when you find refuge in him, you are entering into the presence of unquenchable, never-ending joy. Okay, this might sound like a random question, but have you ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse? Just, if you don't know what a Brazilian steakhouse is, all you have to think about is it's, it's all-you-can-eat steak, essentially. It's all-you-can-eat meat. All-you-can-eat meat. Um, now, maybe if you're like me, you're, you're already a little bit suspicious. You're thinking, all-you-can-eat restaurants, just they spark immediate skepticism in my mind. Like, that's me, right? In fact, Christian and I, the other day, Christian Sindadier, we were talking, uh, and he recommended that we go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, and I, I like almost threw up in my mouth, right? It's, that's like my immediate reaction to the idea of eating at a buffet. But a Brazilian steakhouse is different. You know, when you walk into a Brazilian steakhouse, you have to drop like loads of cash, which is why I'm skeptical of most buffets because it's like 10 bucks for all you can eat food. I'm like automatically just like, mm, I'm, I'm not buying this, right? But when you go to a Brazilian steakhouse, like let's say an inexpensive one, you're dropping like $50 a plate. But you're getting like super high quality meats, right? You're getting lamb. You're getting bacon wrapped filet mignon. And for an extra like $60 a plate, you can get some long dried uh, ribeye, 
right? That, that's what you're getting. This isn't a joke. And here's how it works. You just sit there and you wait for the waiter to come with a big slab of meat and you just say, yes, I want some, please. And he puts it on your plate. And as long as you keep requesting meat, it just keeps coming. And for the first few minutes, I'm just going to say, they are glorious. The first few minutes are glorious. You feel in your mouth the pleasures of God, right? It might only last a few minutes, but you feel as though you are at God's right hand, experiencing his presence, his, his eternal blessings, But that feeling can only last so long when you're in a steakhouse because your body is weak, right? You cannot, this is just the reality of things, right? The blissful feeling fades once your mind recognizes your stomach is full and it's hurting, right? There's pain. Eventually, you feel as though you are fighting against pain just so that you can experience the taste of the bacon-wrapped filet, right? You're just putting in your mouth for the taste and spitting it out, right? It's gross. But, like, anything to get more. Um, there's, if you know Calvin Santos, just ask him about his last experience at a Brazilian steakhouse. He's Brazilian, and he loves Brazilian steakhouses. It's kind of like the story in, uh, in, in the Old Testament where they eat so much meat, there's like meat coming out of their noses. Like that was Calvin from a Brazilian steakhouse, right? It's as though you're just experiencing the pleasures of God, but then in a moment they vanish, and just stomach pain just comes, Right? So why in the world do I break this, bring all this up, right? It's because Brazilians give us a small glimpse into the pleasures of God. They have a, a uni- unique way of doing that for us. But even the best Brazilian steakhouse falls short, right? It might last for 10 minutes. Those 10 minutes might be glorious, but eventually they dry up and pain begins to seep in. That's not the way the eternal pleasures of God work. They have no end. There are no intense stomach pains that back up the eternal pleasures of God. God's eternal joy is ever increasing. It has no climax. It has no beginning and it has no end. It lasts into eternity. And it's far greater than those first 10 minutes in the steakhouse. You see, when you come and you kiss the sun, that comes with remarkable benefits. You get to enter into Christ's immediate presence. You pay respect to Christ now, and you get to enter into his presence where there is fullness of joy. You get Christ. Instead of experiencing the wrath and and terror of God, you get to experience everlasting joy. So as you spend the next few days of this season of Advent reflecting on the reality that Christ will come again, experience this season with with anticipation and with joy because when he returns as the reigning son of God, you, if you are in Christ, can anticipate him and anticipate that that day with joy and expectation. Let's pray.